in special partnership with and brought to you by our friends at Flynn. Today on Soulfront, where we explore personal, social, and workforce transformation, we have three co-authors and their new book, Lead Together, The Bold, Brave, and Intentional Path for Scaling Your Business. Brent Lowe, Susan Basterfield, and Travis Marsh are with us. Brent Lowe is a performance coach who helps leaders show up as their best selves within thriving, purpose-driven teams. With past senior leadership experience in early stage growth companies such as Redney, Achievers, Bullfrog Power, he has some amazing insight. Susan Basterfield's work includes standing shoulder to shoulder with leaders and organizations on transformational journeys, convening development programs, uh, self-mastery intensives, and much more. She's obsessed with building capacity. And finally, we have Travis Marsh, who is a Stanford facilitator, coach, and trainer working with companies and not-for-profits to foster dynamic leadership. Our conversation today will touch on key themes of their book, such as meaningful work, psychological safety, transparency, accountability, as well as what it means to lead together. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Uh, today, um, I have with me the three co-authors of Lead Together, uh, The Bold, The Brave, Intentional Path to Scaling Your Business, uh, Brent Lowe, Susan Basterfield, uh, Travis Marsh. Uh, so thanks so much for, for joining us or for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks so much Thank for having us. Yeah. So uh, just quick introductions to begin. Brent, uh, you're a performance coach helping leaders show up uh, as their best selves within thriving purpose-driven teams. Uh, and uh, Susan, uh, you work with leaders and organizations on transforming their journeys, uh, convening virtual development programs, uh, self-management intensive training, and, and much, much more. Uh, and Travis, uh, you are a Stanford uh, facilitator, coach, trainer, uh, working with companies and not-for-profits to fo uh, foster dynamic leadership. So today we're going to explore uh, your new book. Uh, and, you know, again, uh, just thanks so much for taking the time to, to be with me. Uh, we're going to pass the questions around a bit. Uh, to start, uh, Travis, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what it means to lead together and how you formed the title for your book? Yeah, absolutely. And first, just thank you so much for taking the time. It's so fun to be here and uh, talking to your audience. I think they're going to really dig this because leading together is all about the, the ways that we can bring companies forward in a, in a way that's far more energized and inclusive and purpose-driven. Right? And that's really where the, the name came from. We, we were gathering 100 plus stories from 60 plus companies on pretty radical ways that things can move forward in a more lead together sort of way so that we don't have to be the the only one carrying the the torch if we're the, the founder of a company we can actually do this together and it's far more fun when we do it that way yeah yeah and like i i've, I've obviously read your book and, and really enjoyed it uh, i think there's some great takeaways um the title for your book can you go into that a little bit and uh how did you kind of get there? So it was, it was a really interesting and kind of fun journey, right? So this is the, the third book that we've written to, together and definitely the best one that we've written together. Um, the one that I think we're all the most proud of. And so we, we thought originally that this would be maybe even um, a V2 or V3 of Reinventing Scale-Ups, which was our second book. And it was kind of our first and our second. And when we when we started gathering the the stories that we did, we realized that there was a lot more here, and it deserved much more of a, a full title to to encompass the fact that there's so many more uh, examples that are laced throughout the other uh, book on what the leaders were doing. And when we saw the the common themes that were there, it was really like ways about taking and distributing power in different ways, but mm -hmm. all of them had this place of like this, this community and this pack and that we're in this together sort of feel. And so there was a bunch of different possibilities, but lead together was by far and away the other one that resonated the most with all of us. Yeah. And when I went through the book, what I found interesting was um, 
like how, how much things are changing right now. There's disruptive technologies and they're upending businesses as we know it, but the structure of companies, like you talked about, mainly is, is the same. We've got these traditional top-down leadership uh, organizations. And a lot of people often, you know, when they're in these organizations, they experience frustration, uh, burnout. Um, you know, I, I've experienced these types of things myself. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in traditional organizations and how it influenced you and your co-authors to write the book? Yeah, sure. And I'm going to start as I intend to go on, which is being maybe a little bit more provocative about the reasons I, you know, you say stress and burnout and pain, and that's goes without saying. I think that I've come to understand that not only are the systems that we've inherited set up to privilege the few sitting on top of the pyramid, they're actually designed to cause trauma and pain, right? Um, organizations where uh, the um, decision-making power for what work you get to do, uh, how much you get to be paid, uh, whether or not you're identified as a, a quote unquote high potential and then therefore get to leverage the best learning and development opportunities um, are, are fundamentally designed to constrain and to privilege the few. And uh, the three of us, you know, when we came together four years ago, five years ago, uh, weren't, I don't think we were necessarily even thinking about it from that perspective, but more that, wow, we've all sat in traditional organizations. And when we picked up Frederick Lalu's Reinventing Organizations, we had a similar um, reaction, which is, wow, okay, it doesn't need to be this way. And here are some examples around the world, um, totally industry agnostic. Um, of, of companies and leaders within those organizations that have manifest something completely different and something that resonated, um, I think with us, like both intellectually and emotionally, that each of these organizations created uh, the appropriate structure for what they were trying to manifest in the world, world through their business and that there didn't need to be a compromise between uh, our uh, creating, creating places for us humans to flourish and for businesses to flourish. So rather than sitting in organizations and complaining about the fact that maybe you can have influence on the little silo or sashimi slice that you have control over because there's no compelling reason or no compelling reason strong enough yet for um, the system or the leaders in that system to want to change, we need to figure it out ourselves, right? We need to go out there and try these things and find examples of these brave, bold and intentional organizations out there that are doing that and share the stories. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that. Like, I mean, um, it, it, it is deeper than that. And I think everyone uh, feels uh, that there needs to be change. But what I love is that you guys step back and you've thought about what that change could be. Um, like I, I jotted down some notes in a nutshell, like the leads together core principles uh, include individuals thrive when they're engaged in meaningful work, uh, organizations evolve and require freedom to emerge over time, uh, psychological safety is essential, uh, businesses, uh, business challenges uh, provide the best learning, uh, and transparency, trust, and agency are core to a culture of accountability. Um, so, I mean, that's a great way of kind of looking at, you know, what exists out there and what we, we could potentially do. But Brent, like, over to you, like, what would you say are some of the main roadblocks when you try to push forward a lead together uh, mindset? Mm. Well, maybe even in the, the language you chose there around push forward um, is, you know, there's, uh, I think we all, when we look deeply, are resistant to change. Even those of us that, that like to say that we embrace change, there's, there's still a real inner, inner core to us that, that's really challenged with change. And so um, often initiatives start with one person deciding something's going to change and then pushing it out to everyone else. And uh, 
really to truly embrace what it means to lead together is we need to start internally and look at our own uh, levels of resistance and, and own and, and honor those, uh, those points where we're finding, oh, this is hard for me too. Uh, because it really, leading together does call upon us each to show up differently in the way that we interact from how we would in a traditional organization. Um, I will say that one thing that has been really interesting in the, the current state of the world and the fact that we're, you know, most organizations now have very quickly transitioned to an online uh, presence, video presence that uh, maybe didn't exist in, in those organizations before is that we're now in each other's homes. And uh, that allows us to have a more connected relationship with each other. Uh, business traditionally has been driven by the, you know, we have a, a work face that we wear and then we have a personal face. And, um, and, and putting on the work face meant that, you know, the, the resistance and things that we were feeling, we, we put a face on that and, um, and uh, almost disavowed it or, or discounted it. Um, now, as we're becoming more uh, connected between work and our whole selves, it allows us, it creates a space for us to be more honest uh, with the challenges that we're facing and also creating the space for others to be really honest about the challenges that they're facing as well. Uh, stepping in to lead together will create some level of resistance uh, and we need to create a space where um, we, can, we can address that. Yeah, one, one area that I, I think is really interesting to look into in terms of honesty is uh, power structures. And uh, you describe uh, four types of power stripe, uh, structures. Uh, power over, which is a command and control approach uh, you know, for advocating on behalf of others. Or power four is the other one, advocating on uh, behalf of others. Power with, uh, working collaboratively, uh, collaboratively to decisions and negotiate resources. And then power among, uh, which is almost transformative. It's uh, letting power flow between your colleagues. Travis, would you like believe, well, why do you believe it's important that we understand these power structures? Can you talk about it in the book? Can you, can you maybe go into it a bit? Yeah, and building a little bit on what Brent was saying, like on the fact that we've been invited into each other's homes through this uh, virtual world that we're all living in so much and that we're recording this session on right now, right? Like we, we think about power over or power for as the only two ways that an organization could possibly be run, right? That's, that's the standard paradigm that most people come because that's the only thing that they've seen. And yet in their personal lives, they almost always think about at least power with or power among, right? I know very few people that want to have a long-term life partner where they don't want to be dynamically negotiating and selling and creating more power in their, their relationship um, than was there that either of them came to the table with before. And so why is there such a dichotomy when we, we take what we know so well and we've lived most all of our lives and say, ah, in business, this could never work. And I would argue that most of it is because very few of us have had the chance to experience this and aren't taking the risk to go out there and to try and create it ourselves. So if we can give people a chance to see what it feels like when we sit in a circle and share power among and say, you know what, uh, I'm not better than you, you're not better than me, and we've, got, and we've got real challenges that we want to overcome, and so how can we get there together, right? How can we lead, lead together? And that means that if you know more about a certain area, a certain topic, great, I wanna follow you because you've got that information and that expertise, and I'll learn something along the way. And if I do, I, I know that you trust me enough that uh, you're, you're comfortable if I step in in this, this area and that we can recognize each other's strengths and greatness. And when we play that, it becomes a much sweeter song. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. It's one thing I, I think about is, is how you make the shift, like how you make it actually happen. And Brent, you offered an interesting tool for organizational change called the belief cycle. 
Uh, and that demonstrates how you move from belief over to actions and results. And, and a big part of the belief cycle is this idea of conscious language. And in an article, you said, until I shift my language, my beliefs won't take shape. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the belief cycle and why unconscious uh, or why unconscious, why conscious language matters? For sure. So if we think the, the belief cycle simply says that we have a belief and those beliefs come from our life experiences, how we grew up and, and you know, years and years of, of um, layering one on top of the other. And over time, those beliefs uh, lead to the thoughts that we have in our head. And those thoughts become uh, present through our voice. And so that's, that's when people can start to see whether it's our, our actual physical language or our body language. Uh, and then we start to take action based on the thoughts and then the language. Over time, those um, actions become our habits. And when we layer all of our habits together, that's our character. Our character leads to our results. Our results give us uh, some experiences that then uh, lead to more beliefs and round and round we go. And so um, when we uh, transition from one paradigm or way of thinking to another, then we need to, uh, you know, what we're doing is shifting that cycle. And so um, if we uh, say, oh, I want to change our actions, I want to do some things differently, um, but we don't actually first change the language then it's very hard to, to break the cycle and try something new. So um, the, the conscious language is about uh, making a more uh, predominant shift in uh, how we show up with each other. Um, often what we'll do is we'll, we'll be in an environment and we'll, we'll try something new, but we'll use all the old language. And then it doesn't really, you know, it, it can be confusing to people because there's a long cycle of, of habits that we have in groups. And so by changing the language, that's the first step, visible step in changing how we actually show up together, changing the dynamic that we create with each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, it's, it's something that uh, it takes time to craft it and it's not easy to, uh, uh, put language together that resonates with people. Susan, you've also, uh, you know, uh, really like to play with this idea of, of conscious language. Like, what are your thoughts on it? I think that the important thing that I've come to recognize is language is also a bridge, right? And so if I, in my kind of heady intellectual way, am deciding to use language because it helps me to understand a new concept or a new way of thinking about something, um, it's important to also think about how that will resonate with everybody else. Because if people have not been kind of on that same uh, learning journey for me to come suddenly and pronounce a new word like collective sense-making, for example. I mean, gosh, people might run a mile because the tendency is that new language is alienating. Um, when you hear something that you don't understand, the resistance increases because Nobody wants to look like a, like a fool and say, oh, I have no idea what that means or I don't know how to do that. So I think that there's a, a, a healthy tension and paradox there with elevating our language, but ensuring that it's not alienating and that we're not making up words because it makes us feel better, but we are using language that actually is that bridge. Yeah, and like when you look at, uh conscious language uh, and try to connect it to purpose. I think that's, that's another step kind of in the equation. And purpose can be that strong motivator uh, that helps people work together as well. Like uh, you, you identified like a TEDx talk with Adam Leipzig that asked five simple questions on, on the idea of, of purpose. And one was, you know, who are you? Uh, what do you love to do? 
who do you do it for? Uh, what are those people, what do those people want or what do they need? And you know, how will this change or transform uh, as a result of what you give them? Like what's, what's gonna change? And like, I thought this line of question was very powerful, um, but you know, from your experience researching the book, Susan, like what, like what's an example of a, a company that's able to pull this off? <laughs> like what is a purposeful organization out there right now that we can look to? So it's, it's really interesting that you, uh, you decided to give me this question because there are several chapters in the book where we as co-authors had some strong tension and I would say even disagreements and purpose, the purpose chapter is one of them. Um, I've always believed that knowing your purpose, even with very simple questions is, is a privilege. Um, if you asked me these questions in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s, I'd give you a different answer every single time. Um, and I think that, as you mentioned, some of the kind of core principles of leading together are in an organization. As an organization might start with a pejorative purpose that the founder um, woke up in the middle of the night with, but that might not be the purpose that the, that the organization brings forward. So for me, it's the, the concept of meaningful and significant work um, through which one can see a connection to something bigger than themselves. So for me, purpose in the sense of, I know that the, I know what the, the work that I'm doing has uh, this impact on our customers, on um, potentially my neighborhood or my family or my city or my industry. And the connection um, from a sort of integrity level is there. Um, I get very nervous with the current zeitgeist around purpose being everything. Um, I've started to use the phrase purpose washing, much like we use the phrase greenwashing in the 90s and early 2000s. The idea that, you know, for me, it comes back to this compulsion, this rational masculine compulsion to have an answer, right? So. This, this, this decade, it's all about purpose and purpose is everything. And if you can lock on your purpose, then it solves everything. Mm -hmm. And I think in my experience, not only with, um, with businesses and commercial enterprises, but more specifically with NGOs and organizations that are designed um, from whatever that purpose might be, just for example, you know, ridding the ocean of plastics, that, that purpose becomes the compulsion and, and the people are, are swept aside. And so I think that purpose is important. I think that having a North Star is important, but I think that it's also really important to recognize that, the, that there is a very strong tendency for the purpose to become everything and for the human aspects of leading together to be uh, discarded in um, kind of subjugation of the, of the purpose. So I know that didn't quite answer, give you the oh. question, the answer that you wanted, but that's, that's kind uh -huh. of the, no, the, no. The, the, the beauty and the, and the um, danger of purpose, I think. <laughs> well, I think that uh, that's, that's very interesting that you talk about um, purpose being this idealistic North Star, and it can sometimes distract from, you know, humanization in the business, right? Like just treating people like, uh, human beings and actually helping people out uh, to follow some dreams that um, you know aren't really kind of helping uh, the people who are the, the real stakeholders. Um, another one that's kind of challenging to understand and can be confusing is aligning your values. Like when I think of values aligned with someone, like I assume that you know their values are just like mine. And in the book that you point out that uh, there's something really like something really interesting is that uh, your values uh, and the list of values you have might not be the issue. It might be how you prioritize your values. And uh, Travis, like, you know, what are common misunderstandings organizations have when they try to develop shared values? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different places that people can trip themselves up as they're developing their values. Um, one, which is something that I learned from Susan, which is it's really nice to separate out aspirations from values. And so, you know, like when I was just talking to uh, Jeremy, he's a founder of Dream C Do, which is like a e-learning platform 
and they're growing really well, right? They obviously a lot of people switching to these sorts of platforms now. And he was looking back at his values um, when when he started the the company with his co-founder Josh, you know, uh, four or five years ago, and like they they actually wrote down their values from day one, and it's like, well, they wrote down their aspirations on day one, but they didn't have a working relationship together at the time, right? They didn't know how they were actually going to to show up, so they. It was great. Like it's wonderful to to have somewhere that you're aiming for and where you want to go, but you need to separate that out from what you're actually doing because values are what we're actually doing in the uh, the day to day and how we we show up, right? They're they're often they live in that part of our subconscious that's beyond the uh, the realm of language, so we can't necessarily associate the the. Um, values with language, but it's the only way to communicate them. So we need to put some words on what it is and so we can have that shared experience. But the only way to really get to values is to talk about what have we done? What what's happened when we've been working really well together? And what did that feel like for us? And then we can put language around that. And we, when we have that conversation, we can agree what those, those shared felt sense were and, and we can come to um, a, a collective sense making on those values. Um, but then if we do that, that leads us to probably the most common pitfall with values is that they become some nice platitudes on something that we talked about once and then we don't ever come back to. So this is where I love what Akoja does. And uh, Akoja is like a, a phenomenal organization that's trying to plant a billion trees through a search engine, right? So they, they make their money through through search. Um, and so I, I recommend everybody use them as their, their search platform of choice, help uh, reforest the world. Uh, and the, the cool thing that they do with values is that they throw them in all the time. So they, they have a hashtag that they use on Slack, um, right? And for, for their five different values, it's common that they're brought up in discussions and decisions on, you know, like, is this one focused on the, uh, the user experience or is this focused on growth? Like what's, what's the, you know, and, and oftentimes their intention and that's okay. Like uh, we can't always just assume that it's going to point us to uh, one decision, but the fact that they are used in the day-to-day decisions shows that the values are really alive there. Uh, yeah, I, I, li- I like that uh, language that you just used. Uh, values are alive. I, I think that that's a great way to to think about it. Um, and I think that you know, in order to to get to that space where you can have uh, a conversation about you know your living values. Um, it's psychological safety. Uh, and you need to have that, that place where you feel comfortable to do it. And, um, you know, in the book, you talk about teams need to ask themselves, like, uh, if you make a mistake, is it held against you? Uh, can you bring up problems? Uh, do people on the team reject others for being different? Is it safe to take a risk? Difficult to ask for help? Um, would anyone on the team deliberately undermine another <laughs> and our teams uh team members unique skills being being valued like brent you know these are good questions to ask but like what would you say is a good framework for assessing if an organization is psychologically safe mm, such a good question uh and i invite my co-authors to to jump in if you've got a, a thought to add um you know i i think it, from a the the privileged position that I have as a coach, I'm often sitting on the the outskirts of a team looking in, and uh, so I, I have the opportunity to watch uh, their uh, Slack their their Slack interactions or whatever tool that they're using to uh, facilitate their meetings, to have sidebar conversations, and you. As that outside person, I can very quickly see how are people talking about each other, and uh, is it supportive language? Is it a language of curiosity that they're using, or uh, are they coming from more of a uh, position of of judgment and uh, negative intent? And so, um, so much of psychological safety, I think, comes from intent that you know, for the most part, we can all receive feedback and information that anyone else has to deliver to us if we genuinely believe that it's coming from a a good place. 
And so uh, in teams, um, being able to observe what, what is the intention of the individuals uh, in, in play. So we often uh, have, have in the past referenced a, uh, a tool called Radical Candor, uh, which is, um, speaks about the combination of challenging directly each other um, and caring personally uh, for each other. And um, I think when we, uh, Often what I'll, I'll do in working with individuals is if they're going out to get some, some feedback, uh, maybe on it like an annual or a monthly basis or whatever their, their practice is, to say, well, why don't you ask the, the people that you're seeking feedback from, where do you think that or where do you experience me landing when I communicate? Do you feel like I'm coming from a place of radical candor or do I more go from ruinous empathy, which means I, I speak from a place of care, but really never say what needs to be said? Or do I speak more from, you know, I ch uh, obnoxious aggression, which is challenging very directly, um, but not showing much care for the person that I'm I'm uh, communicating with, or of course the absolute worst is where it's, it's not caring and not challenging directly, which is uh, what's known as manipulative insincerity. And that's, that's often the gossip and things. And that's the, the, that's the area where I can sometimes see as a coach, oh, what's going on behind the scenes? Who, who knows what's going on and uh, for, for themselves, who's hearing what they really need to hear and, and when is their gossip behind, uh, behind the scenes? So that's what comes up for me. Uh, right now for that question. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that, uh, again, the going, coming back to the language, coming back to just the, the intention and, you know, just thinking about it and reflecting on, um, you know, the interactions that you're having with people. Uh, all those things matter. Um, we want to shift a little bit, and this is kind of just a, a fun uh, question, but it's, it's not, it's, it's also serious. And um, I think that, you know, Everyone can agree that if there's one thing in business uh, we all excel in, it's, it's pointless meetings. <laughs> we're, we're great at it. And a friend of mine recently blogged and asked uh, this question. He said, like, what if meetings were optional? Like, what if meetings were optional? Like, what if, uh, you know, you had to actually think, uh, you know, who's going to come to my meeting? Like, you know, and why are they going to come to my meeting? Like Susan, I just want to put this one to you. Uh, my question really here is like, what do we need to consider like when we're having these meaningful uh, meetings? Mm, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm I'm like resisting your question because I, I I don't feel like any of my meetings these days are a waste of time um, because they all have got an an, an objective, right? Um, and as long as I know what the objective of the meeting is, then I can make a decision whether or not it's something that is um, going to add value, that I'm going to either be able to add value to or something that is going to bring me value. It just um, oftentimes there, there's a, a, a process practice that the three of us um, uh, really love called open space technology. And one of the principles of open space technology is the, the law of mobility. So that if you are neither um, uh, contributing to the conversation or learning something. It's, it's actually your responsibility to uh, relocate yourself somewhere else. And I think that if I reflect on your question and think about the times where I was in meetings where I had that feeling of them being a waste of time, it was probably normally a download from the person in the room um, that we in our parlance call the hippo, so, so the highest paid person's opinion, um, either a yeah download of information or um, somebody kind of sucking the space out of the room, pretending that they want input and um, collaboration for others, but, but really don't. Um, a reflection of data or information that didn't necessarily need to be um, communicated in that way. Um, and I think that one thing that this uh, move towards virtual work has enabled, and it was really interesting for me to watch this, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that um, lots of people were just trying to figure out a way to take their old in-person meetings and bring them online. But I think more and more I'm seeing organizations looking at, well, well, no, how can we really 
rethink our assumptions about meetings and what they're for and create, uh, use, use this time and in, in this technology to actually um, think differently. There's a, uh, an organization that we talk about and reference a lot in the book um, called Percolab out of uh, Montreal have a really great um, template called the wise agenda. And they reckon that uh, uh, topics for meetings fall into four categories. One is just, yeah, it's just like a good place to have everybody in one place at one time to communicate information that is better communicated in person because there might be some, some questions that are relevant to everybody. Um, there are uh, scenarios where you do uh, need to update something and need to uh, have um, a space to actually share what you've learned and get reflections on that from, from people in the moment. There are opportunities that you might want to take to actually work together. So for example, if we were crafting an invitation to, to an event, it might just be far more um, efficient to uh, all jump on a Google Doc and kind of jam together on what we're trying to do. And then the fourth is if we need to make decisions together. So especially if you have a culture and a, and a um, sort of a proposal-based um, uh, rituals where uh, somebody that's holding a particular role would like to exercise their advice process in the room to just ask for information to uh, put into their decision, or even if you have a practice of doing some sort of integrated decision-making or generative decision-making together to be able to do that. Now, this sounds like a lot, but what I really love about the WISE Agenda format is that it, 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 lives, it lives in the shared drive and there's a particular amount of time per meeting. And so it's up to the person that's offering um, uh, that the particular, has the particular need to actually put a time box on that and put the category there. And it allows uh, the opportunity for us to really co both collectively manage our time and because it's there ahead of time to make that decision using the law of mobility. Is this a, is this a session I really need to be at or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the two things that I, I really enjoyed from just what you, you talked about was just kind of, uh, taking ownership of, of of the meeting, and then and then thinking about process, like how how to make the meeting as effective as you possibly can, and that kind of bridges over to another part of uh, your book, which is radical responsibility. And there's a, a great anonymous quote at the beginning, which is you know a story of four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody, uh, and there's an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Uh, everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, uh, but nobody did. <laughs> and uh, like this, this sounds to me like a lot of companies uh, and your concept of radical responsibility, it presents this alternative, like a choice to assume ownership for each and every situation we face, a choice to take back our power and to focus on solutions rather than blame. Um, but Travis, like how can radical responsibility transform companies? Yeah, it's such a fun question. And I, I talk to um, leaders all the time. They're like, I'd, I'd love to do this leading together. And nobody on my team wants to take radical responsibility and uh, lean into that. And so like, they're like, if other people just did this, we'd all be fine. And I was like, well, great. Why don't we actually use that lens and uh, work with that? So you want other people to do this uh, thing where, where we look at what's going on in the other system and we say, how do I have some sort of stake? How am I contributing to this, all right? So when, when we turn that lens back inwards, we say like, all right, if, if everything that was happening here was in somehow being impacted by something you were doing, what might you be doing that's enabling the, uh, the system so that uh, other people aren't stepping up as, uh, as they might say? Uh, and, and then they can realize like, oh, you know what? They don't have the, the information that they need. There's nothing transparency. Or when people have stepped up before, they, they've gotten punished for it because people blame the person that's taking initiative. Um, or other parts of the organization aren't going to react well to this. So there might be some, some hidden things that might be more influenced by the, the current named leader 
than they they realize. And so when we can start looking at that radical responsibility, it means that we're we're at cause for everything that's in the system. And so that we have but that expands our locus of control. And so people will step into that if they see other people doing that, especially uh, the the people that had the the named authority. And and if part of that there's an invitation to say, hey, would you like to join me in this uh, this journey together? It's not an expectation, but it's an invitation. Yeah, I, I like that that idea of stepping in. And um, one real fun example of, of stepping in. Uh, is a decision-making tool that you talk about, which is the, the fist of five. And it, it's like rocks, paper, scissors. You know, everyone gets to respond to a proposal, uh, but they do it by, you know, holding up, you know, zero uh, to five fingers. And, you know, the, the closed fist means, you know, I don't support the proposal. One means, you know, I see major issues we need to resolve, um, you know, before we go ahead. Two means I see minor issues that we need to resolve before we move ahead. The three means, you know, we see those minor issues, but we can resolve them later. Four means, you know, I'm fine with the proposal. And then five means I love it. You know, I'm all in, I'm, I'm gonna champion it. Uh, you know, Brent, like, you know, this, this it's a great illustration of quick, quick feedback, this tool. Um, but, you know, a common objection is uh, with decision-making, uh, if you have more involved, it's gonna slow down the process. What are your thoughts on that? First of all, that was a great description of the Fist of Five. Uh, well done. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the Fist of Five is an example of what we call consent-based decision-making. And so what you just described is the difference between two and three on that scale is range of tolerance. So, you know, five is you've hit the bullseye. You couldn't have been any closer for me what I feel and think about this. And as we move from five out to three, we're, we're still in my range of tolerance, but we're getting, you know, further away. And then when we go from three to two, we're now outside my range of tolerance. And so um, by using the fist of five, we get a sense very quickly of where's everybody at on their range of tolerance of this proposal. And it, uh, sometimes it takes teams a little while to get into the use of the tool, but once they're into it, 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 it actually makes decision-making very quick, especially when you have a large group of people. So for example, I facilitate a uh, meeting uh, five times a year that has uh, five, uh, about 35 different people there. And it's a, a lead together based team. So they need to make uh, decisions. And if one person was to go ahead and make a decision on their own, that would be the fastest way. Uh, but then you could have a room full of people that are uh, not with you. And then actually trying to implement the decision becomes would, would become almost impossible because there would be so much resistance. And so tools like Fist of Five allow us to really sense quite quickly, is the team with me? Are we together on this? Are we at least within a range of tolerance for everybody? And if somebody's out, so let's say we had a, a in that group of 35, we had uh, 32 people who were three or above, and we had three people that were two or below. Okay, now we can go to those individuals and say, what would need to be true for you to come over to, to, to a three? And we can get them on board. Whereas the vert you know, often we'll use a who's in yes or no kind of uh, kind of thing. And it can be very polarizing uh, sometimes in a, in a large group. So this allows us to just sense where's the group at and how quickly can we get everybody on board? What, what needs to be true? Um, and so it does create a little bit more time on the front end sometimes, but often not very much. Vista 5 can be done once a team knows how to do it. It can be done in 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't do something like Vista 5, then your uh, your your time to implement could slow down dramatically or become impossible. Yeah, like I, I think that that front end effort that you talk about um, will help like down the line, definitely. I like, I, I love the Fist Five. I think it's like such a cool idea. Um, another another uh, topic that you bring up in the final chapters of your book is about rituals uh, that sustain you know the routines that matter most to organizations and, and and another great quote in the book you know we can't be fully human in organizations that have few rituals 
and little space for stillness, silence, and sadness. Susan, like, what are some of like the best organizational rituals that that, that you've come across uh, that um, are able to create that that place where people are able to do their best work? I mean, it's it's practice and persistence in my mind. Um, how do we? I think if if lead together is to word that's coming into my mind is is work. I'm not sure that's that's the appropriate mind. We 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 have to really move away from this mindset that new things are an event, right? Used to be we'd go on off sites once a year, get all pepped up, and then try to figure out a way to integrate the kind of fun team building stuff we did um, in the country um, back into the work. And it hardly ever works, right? It gives it, it might give that burst of energy for for the next quarter or the next month. But for for this change to actually really take hold and for us to embody it, it's got to have a cadence and it's got to have a regularity that, be, that it becomes a practice rather than an event. So um, in, in the shares that we've done over the last 40 minutes or so, I think almost every element that you uh, brought us into just requires a practice, right? So decision-making requires us to spend time talking about what do we mean by each of the numbers in the fist of five. Um, talking about psychological safety means we need to slow down and take the time to have a meeting whose objective is to just have some quiet reflective space together. And we'll put a, a, a talking piece into the middle of the, into the middle of the Zoom room for an hour and this is where we take the time to actually share all the stuff that we don't normally get to share um, in our busy days and our busy meetings. Um, I know that that in and of itself sounds trite and it might feel trite the first couple of times, but then the third, fourth, fifth time people relax and think, oh, okay. I mean, the, the, the example that I use all the time when I uh, come and start to work with organizations is it takes a year for the system to actually adapt to this new way of working and being because people are suspicious. People think, oh, you know, either, either, you know, the founder, oh gosh, it's, it's, um, it's Anne's, you know, the latest book she's read and her, her latest harebrained scheme. How long, I wonder how long this thing's going to last. Or they believe that, especially if there's a consultant or a coach involved thinking that, oh, you know, they're just here to watch, to figure out how they're going to do the restructure. And this goes back to the, the, you know, my, challenge at the beginning of this conversation that this is what we've learned, right? How many times, I'm sure that all of us have had the scenario of being in a larger organization where you start to see what's happening in the corner office, like these people you don't really recognize in their suits coming and spending more time with the exec team. And then that happens for a while. And then all of a sudden you get uh, the, the all hands that says, we are considering an all structure and we've opened now for consultation. And then, you know, a month later, two months later, you get the letter that says, oh, your, uh, your role has been disestablished. You are, you are free to reapply for your role. And then you may or may not survive. And then if you leave, there's the trauma of that. And if you stay, there's the survivor's guilt. And then you get to participate in this whole new thing, like, like Travis said, like, okay, new values, purpose, like, okay, we get all new colors and we're going to get a new mug and, 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 and on and on and on and on. And we have been, the, the, the structures have actually caused us to be in this kind of constant state of low-grade trauma or even PTSD because we've seen it time and time again. So obviously when the, when the founder or the leader of the organization proposes something new, it's, it's, you're not gonna trust it. It's just human nature. So if you can just keep at it with the regular cadence, the regular cadence that has an openness and a heart and a belief and knowing that people are gonna be at different places 
all the time, even in a single day on what this journey is, then we can start to shift the possibility space for our organizations. Because one thing that we haven't said and we would never do is say, this is the way to do it. No, 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 no. It's about helping the system to adapt itself, to be open to whatever it needs to do. Yeah, and that's such a good point. Like, I mean, whenever you're uh, trying to build uh, progress or, um, you know, make things, you know, just a little bit better, it's, it's being able to connect and build trust. And that's only done over time. Um, so I, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's, it's been wonderful. Like to end, I, I just like to ask, you know, uh, and I do this with all my conversations. Uh, if there's, if there was one, like a one sentence message that you could give or, organizational leaders right now, uh, what would it be? And, uh, uh, Travis, I'll, I'll start with you. Find one thing that you want to try this week and act on that. That's going to bring that openness and allow the system to sense what's needed most. Thanks. Uh, Brent. I, I'm going to double down on that one. I, uh, I think it's, it's, um, this, this is a time that's ripe for trying new things. And uh, so, so find a, a few things to try with the team, uh, co-create those with your team and uh, see what you learn. Wonderful. Uh, Susan. You can do this. <laughs> and it's so true. I think we can. Uh, again, thanks so much uh, for taking the time. Uh, I, I really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your support. Please remember to click subscribe so we can bring you more remarkable interviews with extraordinary leaders.